Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Ed Hu, head of external relations at Harvard Westlake. Amid his 27th year at the school, Ed speaks about his progression from college counseling to advancement to now external relations, where, among other things, he is a centerpiece in Harvard Westlake's evolving relationship with China. Ed also speaks about growing up as the child of Chinese immigrants in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and how working in the family restaurant, Hu's Chinese Kitchen, influenced Ed's understanding of not only work ethic, but also the success one can feel when one's professional and personal lives are in unison. Ed also discusses attending Brown University, and how due to its open curriculum, Ed was granted the freedom to set an entirely new course for both his academic and professional life. Lastly, Ed describes his big move west in 1994, from the Brown College Admission Office to Harvard-Westlake, and how arriving in L.A. enabled Ed to truly come out, in his words, as both an Asian-American man and as a gay man. To so many, Ed is Mr. Harvard-Westlake, and to me, Ed has been a trusted friend and colleague and mentor for many, many years. So it was a great privilege for me to sit down with Ed and hear his story. This is The Supporting Cast. Ed Who, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I know you've been trying to get me for a while. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And we... Uh, work very closely with one another. We've known each other for a long time, but we've never had this conversation. I've heard a lot about your childhood and working in a Chinese restaurant when you were a kid and working <laughs> in college admissions. So I'm, I'm excited, okay. uh, despite knowing you pretty well, to hear all these stories. So I hope they come to mind. <laughs> yes, good. No, me too. So first, it's good to start with the present. We are amid this unprecedented time at Harvard-Westlake in the middle of a pandemic. Our work has changed in every direction Kind of how are you doing? How have you filled your days in addition to working on behalf of Harvard Westlake? Has there been a, a silver lining to some of this time at home for Ed Hu, who, who, as we know, is someone who loves to travel and be out and about and be seeing people? This sometimes surprises people, but I'm a natural introvert. And that would so, surprise people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm really more not just a natural introvert, I'm probably pretty skewed toward being an extreme introvert in a lot of ways, meaning that I'm just very comfortable on my own and that I actually need time to sort of energize. And so much of what I do is social interaction and I enjoy it, but it's, it takes energy. Mm -hmm. And so as a natural introvert, I've actually, I kind of enjoyed being isolated <laughs> during this time. Yeah, I've not gone stir crazy. It is a little weird, I mean, that I am as comfortable with this as I have been. Yeah. And, and actually, the way I'm looking at it is that so much of the last 15 years of my life has been a lot of work-related travel, yeah. weekends and evenings that have been taken up by work. On a macro level, I'm looking at this as a giant rebalancing of my life. Mm -hmm. I'm actually 
sleeping more because I'm not, you know, I don't have the 45 minute to hour commute each way. Like a lot of people rolling out of bed and getting in front of Zoom and sleeping more, losing weight because I'm not eating out as much, Mm -hmm. exercising more regularly because I'm really not moving around. So I'm more conscious of the exercise bike that sits in my living room that I put there to be conspicuous and to make myself get on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've sort of been exercising regularly for the longest period of time that I can remember in my life. Also, the other thing is that as a type 2 diabetic, I have been very cautious about uh, and being very conservative about decisions about going out. And so I've pretty much... You didn't leave home for a long time at the beginning of this, as I I still don't. I go out maybe once a week to go out to the grocery store. And if I need to go to work, and I can probably count on two hands the number of times I've actually been to school, you know, since, since March 12th. I have two cats uh, with me, Freddie and Maxie, and they've been keeping me company and probably at least having two living beings in my midst probably has also helped me through this as well. So, Well, this may surprise people because people know you and people who follow you on social media know that you are traveling all the time on behalf of Harvard West, like you are constantly out having wonderful meals or cooking wonderful meals uh, for others. But your job didn't start off that way. And I want to take us back to how you got to Harvard Westlake. But I Mm -hmm. guess before that, can you talk about when Tom Hudnut asked you to come from the college counseling ranks to kind of start an advancement program at Harvard Westlake? What was that conversation? What spurred it? And what were you charged with doing way back, I guess, in what was that, 2002? 2002. I I guess at that point, I'd been at Harvard Westlake for eight or nine years, and I loved what I was doing. You know, working with kids, doing the college counseling and the deaning was deeply rewarding and challenging and interesting. And and as someone who gets bored very easily, it was never boring and, and therefore always rewarding in a lot of ways. But I think I was trying to, you know, my first midlife crisis, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in the next phase of my life. And I'm always looking for new challenges. And as much as I enjoyed working with kids, I was wondering if, you know, I wanted to spend the rest of my life just like talking about SAT scores. And that got a little bit repetitive. So I was thinking like, what's next? And in, in fact, I had been thinking about doing something entrepreneurial. Hmm. Actually, at at that point in my life in Los Angeles, the market for independent counseling was not yet saturated. Hmm. And so I thought that would be interesting, taking a part of my professional life and, and my expertise and my network and to do something entrepreneurial, go out, hang out my own shingle. And that could be an interesting next phase or challenge. Yeah. And then 9-11 happened. And actually 9-11 made me rethink a lot of things about my life, uh, including- How so? I had kind of taken for granted working in a school community. Yeah. And I realized that you know, in a time of crisis, to have a, a community, to be a part of a community, to go through something like that together was really important to have. And I felt like, well, if boy, if I went out there on my own, running my own business, you wouldn't have that kind of support in that community. And yeah. so 
that was the opening of the conversation that I had with Tom Hudnut was, mm. are there things perhaps here at Harvard Westlake that I could seek new challenges and continue to be a part of what is a great community that I had been a part of for about nine years at that time? And he said, well, have you ever thought about fundraising or alumni relations or development? And I hadn't really given it serious thought at that time. And mm-hmm. in fact, I never thought that I would fundraising, asking people for money was not something that I was comfortable with or had really thought about. Yeah. Uh, so I actually, I asked Tom, well, what's our alumni relations program like? And he said, well, it doesn't exist. That would surprise people, right? Yeah, I was shocked by his answer. Harvard and Westlake had been around for you know almost 100 years by that point. Yeah. And Harvard-Westlake had been a merged school you know, for, about for 10 only years. about 10. Yeah. And that's what I realized, that for the first decade of the existence of the merged entity, Harvard-Westlake, really the first decade was focused on making sure that they had the right curriculum, the right faculty, the right kids, the right facilities. They were focused on all the internal stuff. They hadn't really focused on the externally focused kinds of things. I mean, besides, obviously, Harvard was like a great annual giving program. That's what the focus of the development office was at the time. Mm -hmm. But they hadn't focused on keeping their alumni engaged or to re-engage alumni. It wasn't something that was on the radar at the time. And it was a critical time for the school, I, I think, to go much longer without that kind of strategizing or visioning for it, which is why they were actually looking for a director of alumni relations at the time. And Tom asked me, well, maybe that's something you should think about as a way into the development world. And for him, this made sense. I mean, he could either hire an alumni professional who really didn't know the school to come in and try to establish something, or for someone like me who had been at the school for almost a decade who knew the parent community, knew the alums, and after having been at the school for that amount of time, given that the school was graduating much larger classes as a merged entity, the alumni community was growing exponentially. And I knew about a third of the alumni community in those eight or nine years I had been at the school. Wow. So I kind of had at least some kind of name recognition out there among the alumni community. So it kind of made sense and decided to make that leap. (laughs) Yeah. And there was a decision also made, I guess, strategically that in order for alumni to support the school financially, they would need to be engaged in ways that were not strictly about fundraising. Mm -hmm. You, I think, and others made the decision that let's go out and make sure we have strong programming, that we are engaging alums, and that that's, that's the first ask that you have as an alum is to come to an event or to engage with a student and not necessarily to give and that the giving will come sort of afterwards. Well, yeah. that right? The way that I was looking at it was you got to give people a reason to want to give back. Right. And the complaint that you heard from alums at that point was that we only heard from the school twice a year and that was to ask for money. And yeah. that was a legitimate gripe. And having my experience as an alum volunteer from my alma mater, I was engaged, I was involved, I knew they provided a lot of different kinds of events to go to, to keep you engaged and want to support. And if we weren't providing those kinds of opportunities for our Harvard-Westlake alums, you're not going to have a very successful program. So, so 
for me, the a priority I thought for the school was that we got to develop programming for people to get involved, to plug back in, to want to support the school. Mm-hmm. The vision we had was to create a vibrant and lively alumni community with events and different affinity groups and things like that to give people the opportunity to get involved. But over the last, what, 10, 15 years, the alumni program has continued to expand. The Office of Advancement has continued to expand. You're no longer running day-to-day kind of alumni relations at the school, and your role has changed and expanded. Can you talk about a little bit about what your role is now? Today, the growth of my responsibilities has started with, you know, it was alumni relations, but it was also overseeing the entire advancement operation and sort of growing it. It took us through our first capital campaign and taking it from sort of a a smaller mom and pop shop to a larger office that sort of met the aspirations of a a large school like Harvard-Westlake, which meant the evolution of a communications office, which didn't exist 15 years ago. Yeah. Having a very collaborative relationship with with admissions, especially on the communications front, and having a strategic messaging and social media, uh, you know, how we talk about Harvard-Westlake and how we present ourselves out there whether it is to the broader community of LA or to prospective parents or to our alumni and and current parents and parent of alums. And now as the reach of Harvard-Westlake grows, particularly internationally and specifically in Asia, uh, I've been spending more time in the last few years uh, going to China. You know, this goes back to a few years ago when we thought about, not, not necessarily the next frontier, but when we think about how do we prepare graduates of Harvard-Westlake to be global citizens? And mm-hmm. that it would be important as global citizens in the 21st century for them to have exposure to perspectives beyond that of Los Angeles or the United States. And it made sense for us as a school in the preeminent city on the Pacific Rim to sort of look to Asia and particularly China as, you know, if you look at sort of the geopolitics and, and the global economy, that seemed to be the place that made the most sense. And especially as, as China was growing and as their population was looking to educate their kids. And it's, it's interesting that when you, know, when you talk to people in China, for as much as their technology has grown there, uh, their economy has grown so much, they do a lot of things really well, but they will tell you that the thing that they still admire and feel that the United States does better than anywhere else is education. Hmm, uh, interesting. Particularly post-secondary education. The Harvard, Stanford, MITs of the world are the places that they want to send their kids for college. And it's pretty difficult for them to get their kids into those institutions from Chinese high schools. And so one strategy for those who have the means and really think about the the long-term strategy of, you know, the education of their child is so important that they really do think about this from the time their child is born. It's like, how do we do this considering having their child educated at a excellent high school that has a pipeline to the best colleges and universities in the country, in America, 
Harvard-Westlake sort of rises to the top for them. Mm -hmm. It's pretty recent. I mean, I would say the last five to six years. A lot of it is by word of mouth because we don't do admissions events. We don't recruit there. You know, boarding schools have had this kind of strategy for a long time. Yeah. There are places that have a, a large portion of their population, student population, coming from not just China, but Korea and other places around the world. But for us, we're talking about, you know, a small handful of families, right. four or five that families. That should be clarified. It's it's not a yeah, huge amount. It's not a huge <laughs> thing. But I think it's enough that it adds a global dynamic into our community. But there's also a large population of people who are already living here in LA that have ties to China, whether they families may have moved here 10, 15 years ago or, or three or four years ago. Mm-hmm that have those connections where the, you know, the family business may still be predominantly in China. And so that's been an interesting dynamic that I've spent more time visiting China, visiting families, parents who, who work there. And that's added a very different dimension to, to my work uh, at Harvard Westlake. Well, it's also created some opportunities for faculty too. There yep. have been these summer faculty fellowships. Travel um, opportunities. And- yeah. Yeah, not only in China, but around the world. I don't know if you'd be uh, open yeah. to talking about those as well. Sort of when we think about global opportunities for our kids to be exposed to global perspectives, we want to make sure our teachers are also having those opportunities. Teachers who may have taught about Asia in world history, but have never been there. We've started these summer fellowship programs where a group of maybe 15 to 20 faculty go on a week to two week trip. We've done Korea, Israel, Mexico, Western Europe. Actually, the Western Europe one was a trip that was focused on World War II prior to the 75th anniversary of Normandy and D-Day. A year or so ago, we did one to China that I helped to plan and, and lead. So great opportunities for our faculty and, and again, important for them to be able to uh, see firsthand and get the experiences of things that they've taught and has been part of the curriculum. It makes a huge yeah. difference to the benefit of our kids. So I'd love to go back to where you started, Ed. Mm-hmm. You um, grew up and were born in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Mm-hmm. State College, Pennsylvania, home of the Nittany Lions. <laughs> wow. A college town. I don't think I realized yes. that. Yeah. And then you moved to Bucks County at some point? Born in State College, lived in New Jersey from the time I was like three till I was seven or eight, and then moved to Bucks County, about an hour north of Philadelphia. And your family had a restaurant, is that right? Yeah, my mom started a restaurant. You know, my dad was an engineer, and at the time, employment prospects were not that great. My dad was changing jobs a lot, and so my mom decided to start working. And she actually was interesting. She's more of a creative, artistic person. She was working for a bridal shop. And just down the road from the bridal shop where she was working, she was a dressmaker, the first Chinese restaurant in that area of Bucks County opened. And Mm. so we started frequenting it to get Chinese food. You know, when we lived in New Jersey, we would grow up like every weekend going to Chinatown in New York City. So Mm. to to be able to have access to good Chinese food or just Chinese food, period, Uh, (laughs) not always good in in the suburbs, but at that time, (laughs) one thing led to another. And my mom got the opportunity to manage a second branch of this Chinese restaurant when they opened a second branch. And then 
led to her opening up her own restaurant. So it was it was a place we called it Who's Chinese Kitchen. Uh, mm -hmm. Opened in 1975. I was 10 years old. It was this, you know, it was kind of a hole in the wall restaurant. There were seven tables with a takeout counter. We had a cook at the time. Otherwise, it was my mom and a friend of hers that helped out. But then eventually, it was it was a place that my brother and I have a young a brother who's two years younger than me. We would, you know, after school every day, go and my mom would do the cooking and. My brother and I would be doing the serving and, and started doing some cooking and handling the takeout and dishwashing and everything and serving tables in between doing homework and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of our customers sort of watched us grow up uh, at the restaurant. And as you've joked, you might have been breaking some child labor laws. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, we won't talk about that. But, you know, <laughs> family business, you know. Right, you, exactly. So it was, and, you know, it was just the three of us. And, my you know, my, my dad passed away when I was... 1980. I was 15. And my brother was 13, and so it was just the three of us, and it was hard work. But uh, you know, we learned a lot of good lessons in terms of work ethic and just doing what you need to do. Yeah. What's the lesson you feel like you take from that experience that you've taken into your professional life? There are good lessons and bad lessons in the sense that <laughs> no, I mean I think there's clearly the work ethic. Yeah. When I when I think about <laughs> the things that maybe aren't as good a lessons, it's just that. There's no separation between work and personal life. Mm. It is all wrapped up into one. Um, mm. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm, I guess the bottom line is that I'm not used to anything different from that. Yeah. And so when I look at Harvard Westlake, is there a separation between my personal life and my professional life, yeah, hard to say. I'm not sure. You know, that's like, well, you know, when I think about my world, you know, a lot of it is is Harvard Westlake. And, and that, again, that's not a bad thing. My community is, I find, an incredibly rich one. And that's because the Harvard Westlake community is, is such an interesting one. And, you know, it's funny when I think about some of the advice that I had about growing up in, in an immigrant family, both my parents mm -hmm. are from China and the focus on success equates to happiness. When you're living in a sort of this bicultural world, your parents have this immigrant work ethic and about working hard and providing for your kids and being successful in America. And, you know, and I worked hard in school and stuff, but I also balance out, you know, what is the American dream and what is happiness, you know? Yeah. And I remember a someone that I admired a great deal was one of my best friends, dad was a superintendent of our school district. And I remember asking him when, right before I went off to college about sort of how do you define success and happiness? But he said, you know, I, I see my life as two circles. One circle is my professional life and one circle is my personal life. And the more that I can get these circles to overlap, the happier mm. I'm going to be, the happier I am. And that mm is success in, in his mm. eyes. And I, and wow. that always sort of stuck with me, uh, in, in terms of thinking about what does it mean to be successful in my mom's eyes? It was like that immigrant push. You're going to be a doctor or engineer. And I, right. I was on the doctor path and <laughs> typical immigrant. Yeah, yeah. But I always, I started questioning when I went off to college, whether this is, you know, sure I could be a doctor, but is that what's going to make me happy? Yeah. And when I, you know, think about why have I been at Harvard Westlake for such a long time and, and happy and what I'm doing is that I do think that those two circles of my life, the professional and the personal, 
are overlapped quite a bit. And that, to me, is part of success and part of what leads to happiness. Yeah. And work and life has always been sort of one thing. And that comes from what I learned at Who's Chinese Kitchen <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, and it, yeah. the 9-11 example is that, is that your Harvard Westlake family was yeah. your family. And so that event reminded you. Yeah, I think that, that. and that's, I think, to clarify too, that the whole thing about 9-11 and, and, and why it was important to have community is that, you know, most of my family lives on the East Coast. You know, my brother's in New York, my mom's in New Jersey, and I'm here 3,000 miles away. So I, I don't have family here. And and yeah. and that's why you know Harvard West like what I re, part of what I realized it is, it is kind of like my family. And what about your high school? I know you went to public high school in Central Bucks East. Uh, Bucks County. <laughs> I'm curious there were there teachers sounds like this gentleman who who talked mm-hmm. to you about work and life may have been a mentor mm-hmm. at least gave some advice that you took to heart but were there others in high school that you connected with who were educators that yeah. obviously you didn't know you're going to be in the education business someday but well, probably, inspired probably you in some the way. most influential teacher in my life is actually not someone at CB East but at Holocong Junior High School my 8th and ninth grade English teacher is when I when I think back on who had, as a teacher, had the greatest impact on me? It's probably her. Uh, her name is Pam Crestman, and and why why Miss Crestman? It was an unusual class and group of people, and her as a teacher. We were a group of, I think it was just twelve or thirteen of us, in a. I guess we were identified as gifted kids, so we were smart. Mm-hmm kind of nerdy kids, precocious kids. And she had the same group for about two years. And so it's the first time that I was in a pretty small class. You, you got a lot of personalized attention and she got me more than I sort of got myself at the time. Just hmm. the way she pushed or prodded me really was the first time that I had that kind of experience with a teacher that Hmm. really understood me in a lot of ways that, that I didn't even understand myself. And it's really kind of hmm. in retrospect. I mean, when I think about it, like at that time, yeah, you know, she just had these small group of rambunctious, smart, alecky kind of kids. <laughs> and she really managed us well yeah. and really pushed us. And we had a lot of learning was fun. And yeah. the group of kids you know, we really became sort of a tight knit group of kids that, that were friends for all the way through high school, really. And and wow. in life. And I imagine eighth, ninth grade, that's a time when people yeah. are trying to figure out their own identity in all sorts of ways. And you were obviously have, you were having the immigrant and the American identity and so forth and having someone really understand yeah. you at that particular point in your yeah, life. Yeah, and and and, and and I I, I tell you, as well. When I think about it, I mean I was in the classroom with her in, in eighth and ninth grade, but actually through high school she actually became I was involved with the debate program, and she was actually the coach for our debate team as well. So I had a sustained relationship with her, and she's someone that I actually have, have kept in touch mm-hmm. with to this day. She was someone I, you know, I would always visit when I came back during vacations from college, and and would chat with her, and I, I think just sort of just to update her, but also to sort of get her thoughts on as I was trying to figure out who I was continually, she was always yeah. a good sounding yeah. board. So then you go off after high school to, mm-hmm. to Brown University. And what was your experience like there? And I wonder if there were 
folks, either peers or or mentors you had at Brown? I had a great time at Brown on on a lot of levels, and and I think I was lucky in that it was the right place for me. You know, it's funny. I, I I'm a huge proponent of Brown again for the right kind of kid. Yeah, and I talk about how. I think one of the most important dynamics is what was then called the new curriculum, the Brown curriculum, which doesn't have any you know, general education requirements and, and really allows you to sort of take charge of your own education. That's not mm-hmm. the reason why I chose, chose Brown, but it's the thing that I most appreciate about my Brown education now. I, mean, I chose Brown because to me, it felt like the most comfortable place for me, a place where I could be happy. Um, yeah. It really made me think about my education without having general education requirements or distribution requirements, you're really forced to think about the decisions you're making about the courses you want to take, what do you want to major in? And I quickly learned, for example, that well, I was pre-med at the time. And so I took math and biology and chemistry because they were the pre-med kind of classes. But I realized I'm at Brown and I'm taking these classes that I'm not particularly enjoying. And why am I doing that if yeah. I don't need to do this? And, and it really made me think about, well, what is it that I enjoy? And it, it led to a lot of experimenting, trying out different things, and taking advantage of the Brown curriculum, which is if you take it to its extreme of creating your own classes, I ended up creating three of my own classes, you know, each year, one each year in my sophomore, junior and senior year, which if you think about really taking charge of your education, there's no better way to do it than spending time creating your own syllabus and trying to figure out creating it and proposing it to an academic committee, which then approves it. And then you actually do it. And it's a much more rewarding class uh, Mm -hmm. and experience. And what are some examples of those classes that you created? One one example would be, actually, this leads to one one of my mentors at Brown, which really affected sort of the direction that my life took toward education, was meeting a professor by the name of Ted Sizer. And at the time, I remember actually in my second semester freshman year when I was going through all this angst about gosh, if I'm not going to be a pre-med anymore, what does that mean? What do I really want to do? Brown, every spring has this, the Providence Journal does a joint conference with Brown Public Policy Forum or something, a conference. Mm -hmm. And that year, that spring of my freshman year, it was about education and educational reform. And it sounded interesting. And one of the speakers was this guy, Ted Sizer, who was the dean of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard and former headmaster at Andover. And he had just written a book called Horace's Compromise, and and it's about the plight of a public school teacher and trying to work within the system and how you reform the public education system. Mm -hmm. It was a rainy day, and I just remember, it was a combination of like, let me get out of the rain, and and there was a speaker speaking, it sounded interesting. So I went in and started listening to him, and I was captivated by him. And I learned that he was coming to Brown the following fall as the new chair of the education department. Ah. So when he came to Brown, I started, you know, I was shopping around for classes and he was teaching this class called the craft of teaching. 
and I decided to go to the class and he wanted to limit it to like 30 people in the class and like 75 people showed up. Mm. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's he's a star professor and there's no way I'm going to get into this class because he's got to cut out half the people. Yeah, he's a nice, super nice guy. And he said, instead of saying no to you, I'm just going to teach two sections of this class. Oh, great. (laughs) And so I ended up as a lowly sophomore, not thinking that I'd be able to get into this class. I get into this class and I just had this revelatory experience of thinking about education and, and, and revelatory in a lot of ways in terms of, of, you know, he's someone who is steeped in the private, you know, he was the headmaster of Andover. I come from public school and I didn't really know what the private school world was like. Yeah. To understand great teachers who work in an environment where they're supported by their colleagues and by the whole culture of the school, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. And I, I went to him to have a conversation about a project that I was thinking about. And this goes back to an experience I had in high school. There was a teacher strike in my school district in my senior year. It was a month-long teacher strike. So we actually did not start school until October 1st of my senior year. And I was involved in a, we were sort of on the surface, you know, we were protesting the strike because we were like, what is our place in between the school board on one side and teachers on the other side? And we thought we were the ones being hurt because we couldn't go to school. Yeah. This is the very nerdy perspective, you know? <laughs> right. And so we band together and started this, this protest group. But through this process, you know, I was one of the student leaders. I kept a journal through this time. Mm. I wanted to do something kind of literary with it or, so, or something. I wanted to work with it. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Ted and said, you know, can you give me some ideas? And I didn't expect him to say, you know, I think this is a really good idea. I'd be happy to work with you and be your advisor. And if you wanted to sort of put together an independent study proposal, I'll be your faculty advisor, but I'll work on the education aspect of it. If you can find an English teacher to work with you on the writing aspect. Oh, interesting. So I found an English teacher and Ted, you know, Ted was in the middle of, the, you know, he was running this whole reform movement called the Coalition of Essential Schools. And he was traveling all over the country, but he always made the time to meet with me whenever he was in town. Hmm. It, it was a an experience that I learned that I am a decent writer or mm-hmm. I had the desire to write. I'm not, I don't consider myself a good writer, but that, and I always joke about how I'm ESL because, you know, Chinese was my first language, Yeah, that I never thought of myself as a good writer. And in fact, it goes back to Pam Cressman, who was someone who encouraged me and, and, and actually thought that I was, a, I was a good writer. Yeah, And I, I never saw myself in that light. And the same thing with you know, sort of this experience with Ted, opening up my world to education and then also uh, on the writing part of it. That was a one example of sort of of an independent project that actually went beyond that semester, went on for another sort of summer and semester after that. It was a project that continued working on. Those are the kind of experiences at Brown where, you know, to work with a professor one-on-one like that of, of, of a stature like Ted. And I did two other projects. One was a group independent study project on sports psychology, because mm. I was very interested in sports and I was manager of the baseball team. and. My major eventually was psychology and it was, and, but there were no sports psychology and no sports psychology courses at Brown. And it was much earlier in sort of the whole field of sports, sports psychology. This is, you know, 
30 plus years ago, yeah, 35 years ago. So it was fascinating to be able to take the field that I was majoring and apply it to a world that I was a part of. And we created a class. And then my senior year took my interest in writing and my interest in baseball. Because baseball, I think, is one of those few sports where there's great literature about baseball and they're great baseball writers. And decided I wanted to try my hand at baseball writing. And so I I sort of did that as an independent study my senior year. Hmm. So Brown was a place that encouraged me to sort of take the initiative, take risks, and take advantage of opportunities and create things, yeah. uh, that things that didn't exist before. Yeah. Which is sort of a, a theme that like, you know, you think about Harvard Westlake, I have had what, four or five different titles yeah. here at Harvard Westlake, but only the first one when I came here as an associate director of college counseling, was it a position that existed before me? Yeah. And so right. uh, to be in an environment where I can sort of create opportunities and create jobs that didn't exist before and meet a need. It's been sort of a theme that, that I think comes out of Brown. Right. I often think about this when yeah, you know, I was deciding between Brown and Yale as my options for college. You know, my mom wanted me to go to Yale. I wanted to go to Brown. I think had I gone to Yale, and this is not at any kind of disparaging thing. I think it's just an observation. I think had I gone to Yale, I think I would be a doctor today. Mm, interesting. I don't think I would have questioned that route. I would have sort of do the things that I needed to do to, in order to become a doctor, because that's what I should do to mm. be the good son, you know, and pursue what I, the definition of success that was to be a doctor. Whereas at Brown, I was constantly questioning what is success, what is happiness, what am I good at that's led down to a, a path that I would never have predicted. Yeah as a high school senior or a college freshman. So then you go into college admission, right? Out of undergrad, you go into the Brown admission office, sort of from there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I I was manager of the baseball team when I was at Brown. And this is another thing where I was the first manager that the, that the coach at Brown had ever had. He was a part-time coach. Mm. And when I went to my freshman year, he said, no, yeah, I never had a manager, so let me, why don't you come and join? And then the first day he had me like basically picking up balls and bats. That is not what I had envisioned being right. a manager. Because he was a part-time coach and I was on campus, I eventually played a pretty significant role in the recruitment program for the school, oh. and for, the, for the program. And that led me to interface with the admission office. Ah, and actually, I interfaced with the admission office on, from two aspects. One was from the athletic perspective, in terms of recruiting and, and trying to figure out the process of helping the student athlete get into Brown. But also, I was the head of the student organization called the Bruin Club, which is the group that does all the tours and overnight stays and, and those kinds of things. And so I met people through the admission office that way. And so when it came time to think about jobs, I had been exposed to the mission office, and one of the people that I'd gotten to know in the mission office invited me to, in my spring of my senior year, winter of my senior year, she said, why don't you come and sit in on committee and mm. see what that's like? Because she wow. knew I was interested in education and in school culture. She said, I think it would be interesting for you to sit in on committee and sort of see how it works and what we see in terms of educational systems across the country on two separate occasions, I got in to sit in on a, 
full afternoon of, of committee. That sort of was fascinating because it then was able to combine. I was a psych major. I was interested in, in looking at individuals and the various experiences. What are the, the, the environment, the culture, the school, their life experiences that shape who they are and how they get to potentially be a part of a broader community at Brown and being able to sort of put a community together that's going to be the most fascinating, interesting community where people are going to learn from one another. I decided that would, would sound like a pretty cool job out of college. Yeah. Applied for a job at the Brown admission office, didn't get it, ended up getting a job at Occidental College here in Los Angeles. And I actually handled the East Coast for the Occidental admission office. And then after a couple of years, I decided to go back to Brown and worked mm. in the office there. My responsibilities were the West Coast, a lot of the West Coast and LA in particular. That's what opened up the door to, you know, I knew Westlake and I knew Harvard and I knew yeah. Harvard Westlake in those five years that I handled Los Angeles. And that's how I got to know Tom Hudna. That's how I ended up at Harvard Westlake. Wow. When you came out to the West Coast to work in college admission at Occidental, kind of what was drawing you here at that time? First, it was it was the first job offer that I got. So it was yeah, a job. It was a job. But I think there was a great appeal to coming out to LA as a place where I didn't really know anyone and people in, in that sense that there wasn't an expectation of, of who I was and that I could sort of explore my identity. Because one of the things that I was trying to figure out at the time was is just coming out as as uh, a gay person mm -hmm. and i'd really struggled with that and all the way through college and so coming out to la it's interesting i i often think about how i actually came out as an asian american man before i came out as a gay man <laughs> and meaning that growing up in a conservative all-white suburban area. You know, our family was one of the few families of color. And there were all these sort of Asian stereotypes. And even and then there's also sort of family expectations of visions of success were about being a doctor or a lawyer. And choosing education was not something that fit the model of, of what success was. And, yeah. But by coming out to California, again, when I looked at my parents' friends, they were all doctors and engineers. Yeah, And so that's all that I saw as success or was, was even possible as a Chinese person. <laughs> and coming to LA, having such a large Asian environment where there were Asian policemen, Asian newscasters, mm. Asian, you know, I was like, wow, I could be anyone I want to be. And that was really liberating. Mm. And I think that's also what led me to finally be able to sort of deal with my real identity that I'd been sort of lying about or hiding in, or passing for 22, 23 years of my life. And I was finally able to embrace it. And again, I, I think just the, again, this is, this is like 30 plus years ago, the West Coast was a more open-minded place and it gave me the freedom to be able to explore it was there was a much larger gay community that i was able to see the possibilities of being able to be out and successful 
yeah. uh, and, and be myself. And, and I think it's partly what led me to return back to the East Coast when I went to, back at Brown. Mm-hmm. Part of it was that I had come out to myself and started coming out to friends. And at that time, I was, I was going to say relatives, but it really was my, just my brother. Yeah. Going back to the East Coast and being around people who I'd grown up with and who were important to me to be able to sort of reconcile my life yeah. and make it whole. Hmm. Uh, was part of the decision to, you know, first come out here and then to go back. So yeah, I, w- I would also say that, again, you got to think about the time in our history and what it was like in the early 90s when I came out to work at Harvard-Westlake. Tom Hudnut, when he offered me the job, yeah, my resume, I was out and I, you know, again, wasn't going to hide that fact. And I didn't want to work anywhere where that would be a factor. And right. he actually, when he made the offer, s- said that if you wanted to be a faculty sponsor for our Project 10 group, which, which is the confidential group for our LGBTQ uh, students at the time, that he would thought that would be great. And mm. that sent a really strong message about the kind of place that Harvard-Westlake was. Yeah. Think about that. Early 90s was not a time when places like, I think, Harvard-Westlake were, you know, I wouldn't describe as progressive or liberal. Mm -hmm. But I I, I will say that Tom signaled me, whether he knew it or not, he signaled a very strong message that Harvard-Westlake would be a welcoming place where I could be myself. And wow. that that was that was pretty important and uh, and made a big difference in my decision to come out here. And in turn, in working with students, you were able to pass that on to students and and try to create an environment here, uh, absolutely, Harvard Westlake that was welcoming to them as well. And there were already, in honor of of those who ke- did come before me, there were teachers who were already here who were here and and came out who sort yeah. of led the way. Uh, yeah. Sherry Galky, Luba Beck, you know, Steve Marsden. Uh, those are all people who were there for kids, and and I was able to to join them in, especially I, I think as as a person of color, I think yeah, right. it was also significant that it's okay to be who you are, yeah. uh, and 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 not to necessarily have to hide, or that things would get better down the road. Yeah, right, right, right. Before we go, I want to ask you. There's a few standard questions as part of the sure. supporting cast, and really they're. They're the questions I think people would really want to ask Ed Who, because they're sort of the Ed Who standard questions, I would think. Um, (laughs) L.A. is known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the questions are, Ed Who, first, what is your favorite movie? Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) And you're, as a lot of people know, you're a big movie buff. So you have seen a lot of things, and you watch a lot of movies. You go to Sundance every year. Is there one that, or maybe (sighs) it can be more than one. But are there, I mean, is there one or two? There are the the classics like Chinatown, Godfather Part Two, but probably the one that's a little different and and which may say, you know, I guess there's the, the dark part of me. Blue Velvet is one of my oh. favorite movies of all time. Secondly, what is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? It's another tough one for Ed Who, but like these are questions that you can't just like pick one answer for. Well, it can be something that you make at home, or it can be something out in San Gabriel Valley. I know that you go to, but if every other weekend I I go and do a a Sichuan food run at either Shang La Hui, which is one of my new favorite Sichuan places, mm. or Sichuan Impression in Alhambra, and 
as someone who does not like tofu, mapu tofu by both of these places are like the dishes that I crave. On the alternate weekends, I will stock up on dim sum. Mm. <laughs> and then I've also been making a lot of my own dumplings. So those are the kind of things that, like the staples that I would need to have <laughs> in Got my it. diet. Thirdly, what is your favorite place in Los Angeles? Could be a part of town. It could be a specific location. When I first moved to LA, I lived up in the Hollywood Hills. And it's a place I actually, I, I dream one day that maybe I'll, I'll go back and live there. Although I have a pretty idyllic setting here in Silver Lake, uh, yeah. overlooking Silver Lake and the mountains and stuff. But mountains and, and, and views, I lived up right off of Mulholland, about a 10-minute walk from Runyon Canyon. Oh. And again, this is, what, 27 years ago. I, I'd walk you know, 10 minutes to get to Runyon Canyon. That was, I don't know, it, was, it felt like it was undiscovered at the time, mm. but it was the, the lookout point that I could walk to, and I loved going there at sunset. And you could just see it, the 360 views. You can see downtown, the ocean, and the valley. And you're in the middle of one of the largest cities in the world, and you felt like you were above it all, and it just didn't feel like urban. Yeah. Um, and it was peaceful, quiet. You know, I don't think it's like that anymore. Whenever I drive by Runyon Canyon now, there's always tons of cars and tons of people. It's probably not that peaceful anymore, but... You know, Runyon Canyon of 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Easier to park probably back then yes, too. Yes, well, and I walked. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Got it. <laughs> Lastly, you know, I'm as you know, I am the parent of a, a two-year-old little girl. You've spent time, I know, as a college counselor around a lot of parents, and you've worked with a lot of parents, not only as a fundraiser, but as a college counselor, as a dean. You've dealt with parents when their kids have had huge successes, when their kids have had have made mistakes. What's your best parenting advice to someone like me or another Harvard Westlake parent? I think the good parents, I'm sure this is not easy, but the ability to give your kids space to be themselves, but know where those guardrails are without being overbearing or too directive hmm. kids who have the space to be able to sort of make decisions make mistakes mm -hmm. be allowed to fail and not in the life-threatening failure kind of ways yeah you know again this sort of comes from my psych background and being fascinated by life experiences and the environment that people are in that shape who they are and, and who they become and what shapes your identity. And I, I think it's having the latitude and freedom to sort of make choices and not feel like you're doing things in reaction to what your parents want you to do. Yeah. Which sometimes leads to wrong choices. Yeah. But really to sort of struggle with the multitude of options that are out there and to I mean, the struggle, I think that's part of you know, what, what really allows people to learn about how they become comfortable with making choices that are going to be important in their lives yeah, and not to 
have been, like I said, too heavy handed in, in, in the role of the parents, but it's a fine line. It's a yeah. very fine line. And for me, easier said than done because I don't have kids <laughs> No, and, but... and my cats don't listen to me anyway. So I just, <laughs> I just let them be, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's good advice. And it's good advice about schools too. I mean, your ability to kind of make your own way at Brown and create your own opportunities and create your own yeah. educational experiences that there was enough latitude in your experience to be able to figure out your own identity and who you were and what you wanted. And that, that led you to education, which has yeah. been such a fulfilling calling. Yeah, and and I, I, said, I, I think that, you know, with, if you have supportive parents and will you give your kids room to grow, somehow it all works out. Yeah. But with the proper kind of support. Yeah. Right. Um, so, right. Well, Ed Hu, thank you for joining the supporting cast. Thank you, Eli. This is, you know, I, I, I think you're doing a great service here and, and a lot of fun. And I've been enjoying listening to, to these as well. So oh, great. It's, well, it's great to be a part of it. Great. And, well, I, and I hope I said coherent, relevant things. <laughs> you absolutely did. <laughs> if not, it's, there's always editing. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> great.